Hello, I'm Philip Brain. And I'm Harry Clennon. And you're listening to Focus Interviews by Spectacles. Today, we're joined by Thomas Maine to discuss his recently released book, The Rise of Illiberalism. Maine is a professor at the Marx, well, not that Marx, School of Public and International Affairs at Baruch College at the City University of New York, where he's been researching and writing and teaching for more than 25 years. He's written previously on the American alt-right movement, and he brings a lot of that prior experience with the subject matter to the fore of today's book. And I have to say, it's definitely worth your time to read if you're looking not just for a better understanding of contemporary illiberal movements and thought, but also for a defense of liberalism and liberal democracy and advice for a path forward out of the mess we find ourselves in today. The book provides an insightful quantitative explanation of the size of illiberal movements, activity on the internet, and an enlightening dive into the intellectual history, which sometimes accidentally helped to birth these movements. His defense of liberalism is spirited and more convincing than most we've come across. Today, we're going to be talking about the book, the liberalism, how to defend liberalism, and how to restore its influence in society and protect liberal democracy. So, Professor, thanks for coming on. It's great to have you. How should we call you? Professor? Thomas? Tom? Uh, you, how about Thomas? That'll do. Great. So, before we dive into our questions, uh, I'm going to imagine that most of our listeners haven't read the book, though hopefully after this, that will change. But for those who haven't read it, give us the elevator pitch, the rundown, if you can, in a few minutes. There's no need to be detailed, as we'll definitely dive into the nitty-gritty as we go on. But what is liberalism as you define it, and what is illiberalism? Why is it dangerous, and what can we do about it going forward? Liberalism, or the, what I would call liberal democracy, right, is the political philosophy that is summed up in the second paragraph of the Declaration of Independence. It's essentially about uh, political egalitarianism, human rights, electoral democracy, the rule of law, limited government, and a political culture based on tolerance and rational debate. And uh, this is the this is the political philosophy, which you know if you if you consult encyclopedic works on the history of government, you will find many of them, you know, come to the conclusion, gee whiz, humankind has not found, has not prospered as much under any other form of government as it has under the liberal democratic regimes of the post-war period. Mm -hmm. So it's a big deal. And illiberalism is any political doctrine, any political philosophy that rejects those uh, principles of uh, liberal democracy, either in part or in whole, in whole. So communism on the left, communism and anarchism are forms, forms of illiberalism. Right. Nowadays, more salient and important are the illiberalisms of the right. And, and uh, besides the traditional KKK groups and neo-Nazis, you have things like the alt-right, the alt-light, mm -hmm. uh, the manosphere, the dark enlightenment. That's what I mean by mm -hmm. liberal democracy and illiberalism. Can you, so just to sort of dive into what that illiberal ideology looks like, I was curious to some extent about sort of the relationship between what you call the, what we might call the soft core illiberal right and the hardcore liberal right is I think how you frame it in the book. Yeah. You've got sort of these, you've got like explicit neo-Nazis, the KKK, but you have this maybe more soft core side of it that might even be sort of mainstream in, for example, the Republican Party today. And then if you also wanted to maybe comment on the relationship as well between sort of mainstream conservatism, which I think has always had somewhat complicated relationship with majoritarian democracy, given that it has maybe sometimes a favorable view of hierarchy, although of course not always, the relationship between those things, given that you're particularly focusing on the threat of the liberal right. Yes, yes. Well, um, hardcore liberalism, you know, as it's expressed by, you know, there would be websites like the Daily Stormer is perhaps the most uh, famous of these sites. The Stormer and similar sites explicitly step forward and reject one or another of the principles of liberal democracy. So, you know, there are, there's a whole archipelago of illiberal sites, alt-right sites that explicitly say, all men are not created equal. That maybe, you know, that would be mm -hmm. that phrase, all men are not created equal, sums up 
illiberal ideology in a phrase. And there are plenty of sites which say that explicitly. American Renaissance would be ex- an example of such sites. Right. And, uh, you know, and there are sites that that explicitly express racialism, right? A mm-hmm. racial prejudice. The, let's see, Occidental Descent uh, says explicitly, oh, we think that uh, racial equality is BS and uh, there's less evidence for it than there is for the uh, old alchemy of the Middle Ages. So that's, that's the hardcore, wow. right? However... However, one of the principles of liberal democracy is the kind of political culture that it needs to thrive in. It's not enough to have have democracy and the rule of law, etc. Unless you have a political culture, unless you have a kind of a climate, a a longstanding climate of opinion that is favorable Mm. to liberal Mm -hmm. democracy and also favorable to rational discourse. Democracy cannot thrive in an environment of uh, fake news, lies, propaganda, and uh, conspiracy theories. Because why? Because, hey, people have to choose the government and they can't choose the government when you know they're they're flooded with a a, a culture that's inherently uh, anti-democratic. Right. So also also the the other I- I- implicit in this concept of a democratic political culture is the idea that your adversaries are just that adversaries, not enemies. Hmm. And politics is not war where each side seeks seeks to destroy the other. Because obviously, hey, after an election, the people that you just got finished campaigning about against are still there. You got to work with them. So, right, hopefully, um, when you, yeah. So when you have, you know, a outlets or writers or movements that do not explicitly step for, forward and say, oh, you know, ra- there's no such thing as racial equality, but they engage in a um, vituperative, vindictive style of uh, rhetoric one which demonizes the opposition, one which sees political discourse as simply one type of war, a different type, a certain kind of weapon that you use against the right. enemy, one that one that that characterizes your opponents, uh, your adversaries as um, enemies. That kind of, of, of vituperative, warlike, demonizing rhetorical style, that also in, is, is just as poisonous uh, to liberal democracy as an explicit rejection of its political principles. And, and But what's interesting about the development of an illiberal rhetorical style is that outlets, for example, Fox News, Fox News where you can't deliberately step forward and say, hey, you know what, you know, black people are just not equal to white people. You can't do that when you're seeking a, a you know, truly mass audience. So you can communicate the essence of illiberal ideology through the demonizing uh, warlike us versus them style of rhetoric. And sites that do that, I, I would describe as alt-light or perhaps, you know, illiberalism light. I mean, obviously, from that description, illiberalism is a big problem if it flourishes in a democracy, right? Yes. And, and And so that much is obvious. But in your book, you, you argue that the illiberal right, as we spent a lot of time just talking about, is a greater threat than the illiberal left. Examples yes. like communists, anarchists, etc. Uh, particularly because of the illiberal rights size and online following, which you gather some, from, from website data uh, about these movements. But from my experience, I'm just curious what you think about this. When I get on Twitter, for example, and if you get on Twitter and you enter a search for users with the swastika Unicode symbol in their name, so maybe you're searching for sort of illiberal right Nazi yeah, type yeah. people on this website, all you get for a result of that is... Indian and Hindu accounts on the website where the swastika <laughs> isn't a symbol yeah. of Nazism, but it's a symbol, of, uh, but it's a religious symbol, right? Yes, yes. When I when I make a similar search for the hammer and sickle symbol, for example, uh, I'm greeted by thousands of accounts which do, in fact, espouse communism and an illiberal yeah. ideology. So I guess the question I'm, I have is, is it possible maybe that uh, we're underestimating the size of the illiberal left by looking at website visits and data, perhaps because they are more welcome than the illiberal right on these sort of mainstream Mm -hmm. social media platforms like Twitter. 
Well, that's an interesting point, right? The, the, my research works with website traffic data, right? And hey, websites are an important medium, right? Certainly. So if, if, if you accept my argument that on this important medium, the illiberal right dominates and is much larger than the illiberal left, well, that's an important point. Now, however, you could go on and say, well, what about other sorts of digital media? Mm-hmm. And, and I, you know, and I have not done the quantitative analysis that you describe. I don't know if anybody has done the quantitative analysis that you describe. And it may well be that the illiberal left has more of a presence in, say, Twitter and other sorts of, of, of digital media. Nonetheless, I mean, my to venture a hypothesis, you know, I sure. guess, uh, I think that the, in general, right, if you, even, even if you were talking about political culture that extends beyond websites, I, I think that the illiberal left, as I describe it, okay, now, now, now keep in mind, I'm not when I talk about the illiberal left, I'm not talking about progressives who say mean things about Israel. I'm not talking about progressives who belittle conservatives or who protest right. when Ben Shapiro comes to talk on their campus. <laughs> right. Okay. All that's all that sort of stuff. You you can decide is that good or is that bad? What do you think of it? Right. That that's Sure. But that's neither here nor there, because all of that stuff, none of that stuff explicitly challenges liberal democracy. Now, okay. so if, if so, therefore, what I'm concerned about is is in a liberal left that openly and consciously challenges and works to undermine liberal democracy. And viewed in those terms, you know, my analysis shows the liberal left to be quite small. Mm-hmm. And my my sense is that the liberal left defined in those terms would turn out to be, you know, a, a small force in our political culture. And I think that the the forms of a liberal rightism that I described, especially if you incorporate into this the liberal right rhetorical strategy, I think my, my, my guess would be, my hypothesis would be that even looking at the, the general political cultural overall, I think you would still find the the liberal right to be uh, uh, considerably uh, greater size, but but that's a hypothesis to, that deserves examination, and that I will try to do in future research. Yeah, I mean, I think you, you're making an important point here, and I guess one thing that comes to my mind is that Twitter is like a very general, broad platform, um, whereas you're talking about sites that are very explicitly, you know, designed to be, you know, virtual gathering spaces for these yes. um, radical right-wing ideologies, and there appear to be fewer of those dedicated spaces for the left. And I don't so much, I, 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 I do take Philip's point, but I think maybe there's an extent to which, because it's on Twitter, which is such a general platform, that there might be less like organizing in that in those spaces or something like that. And it's also, you know, um, true that when you look at, I guess, like hard political power, right? I mean, I think you see that this or maybe the more soft core liberals are holding political power right now, whereas like, I don't know, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, as you know, similar point to what you made, doesn't represent, you know, the liberal left, right? I mean, she's yes. a progressive I, left. I, I mean, not. It, yes, I, I would, you know, that's, you make another excellent point. You know, the illiberal left, if you define it the way I do, Right. Has not had a political candidate that has ever had much success in the in the United States. I mean, maybe you might argue that McGovern was influenced by the new left, although, and you know, in fact, for the most part, you know, he was against the war in Vietnam. But for, by and large, and for the most part, he was pretty much a con- conventional a liberal. And of course, he lost dramatically. So nowadays, there is no political candidate, no political party that expresses, you know, whether explicitly or covertly, Leninist, Maoist, Trotskyist ideology, right? right. Whereas the the liberal right, you know, through the mechanism of developing a, a rhetorical style that can be used with truly mass audiences did succeed in electing somebody who, uh, you know, Trump, listen, now, can Trump be called an illiberal? Well, you know, it, it's, it's not clear that you know, Trump has a consistent set of ideas about anything, <laughs> in politics, yep. right? But right. however, you know, uh, his, 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 his expostulations, his, gen, his, you know, et cetera, 
are recognizably those from the liberal right. It, you know, certainly demonizes his opponents, certainly trades in uh, fake news and uh, lies and, you know, over flirts with the explicit illiberal right in various ways, such as, you know, accepting the uh, label for his movement of America first, which, of course, was once upon a time used by isolationists, people who wanted to stay out of the war against the uh, the Nazis and were sympathetic even with the Nazis. So for some reason or other, Trump picks that as the slogan to label his movement with. Well, why, why is that? Why not call it America? Yes, sir. America? Yeah. You know, <laughs> no, it had to be America first, right? Right. And uh, so on. So so overall, I think Trump could be, you know, is accurately described as, a, you might say, a crypto illiberal. And so my, so again, we come around to the point the illiberal right has gotten its toehold into electoral politics. Right. The illiberal left isn't, you know, hasn't come within a country mile of that. Right, right. Yeah, I think that 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 all comes across and I think that's a very compelling argument. I want to pivot a little bit here to sort of your positive argument, what much of which seems to me to hinge on the existence of sort of a baseline set of shared American values. I think they're ethnoculturalism, yes. liberalism, civic republicanism and incorporationism as you take them yes, from yes. Um, some survey data. What I what I do wonder about that, I'd like to hear you talk about a, a little bit more about that, but I'm also wondering just how precise those values are, whether they're I don't know, specific and felt enough to validate what you're getting at. Because I think it's certainly true that at a sufficiently high level of abstraction that we might tend to agree about patriotism or the national project, but at the brass tax level, things might get a whole lot murkier, right? For example, yeah. um, I think yeah. this is one of the survey questions on respect for American laws and institutions registers something like 80% strong support. But of course, today, I think we'd find that one side thinks of respect yeah. thinks of respect for American laws and institutions totally different differently than the other side and they, they like there may not even be any common ground can you speak one to sort of yeah. what those shared values are and how we can build off of them but also you know are they specific enough when we get down to brass tacks yeah. i think just to build on that really quickly i think one other example that maybe illustrates the point really well is uh, incorporationism is one of the values which is essentially the value of we are a nation of immigrants right and i i guess one thing that harry and i had talked about is we totally uh, believe that probably 80 plus percent of Americans would say, yes, we are a nation of immigrants, but it would be yes, interesting yeah. to see within that, that, that broad group of Americans who believe that what kind of immigrant groups do they name? I mean, yes. I imagine that some people would name the Germans, Italians and Irish and leave out, yeah. you know, Hispanic immigrants and Asian yeah. immigrants and things like yeah. this. So it yeah. seems like maybe yeah. we agree on a sort of theoretical level, but are we, are we, how close are we on the sort of brass okay. tax? So let's, let, let's, we got to back up a little bit. Okay. Sure. Liberal democracies tend to have pluralistic political environments. That is to say, in political environments characterized by many different interest groups, right? right. All of which they struggle, lobby for, to advance their own interests. Okay. And that's, that's been known of liberal democracies at least since Federalist 10, right? right. Which talks about <laughs> actions. Okay. So this is so, so having a political, politi that, that liberal democracies have pluralistic political environments is well known. Now, more recently, it, it's been realized that pluralistic political environments may be conducive to liberty as Madison argued, but they also have collective action problems, right. right? Because no one faction is, you know, concerned about anything except its own interests. And of course, you know, it's true that people acting in that self-interest can be guided by the invisible hand to optimal outcomes. But it's, it's also true that, as we've learned uh, even more recently, that some interest groups up form much more easily than others. So right. interest groups are that are small, small number of people that have uh, very specific, immediate, tangible benefits at stake in their political organizing. They organize much more effectively than does the broad public. Mm -hmm. And so these special interest groups exploit the broad public, and that's a problem. Right. Okay. So what do you do about this problem? Uh, illiberals step forward and say, well, there has to be some force that binds the whole nation together. 
And what is that force, according to uh, the liberals? Answer, it's race. Okay, so this, you know, that that can that solution, you know, not only is it not much of a solution, right, because even if you have a country that's homogeneous in terms of its race, it's still entirely possible to have a very pluralistic political environment that will display the collective action problems. And also, even if it works, it's worse than the than than the disease because, uh, hey, it's it, it destroys liberal democracy. So, yes, all that's true. You know, when we, when we when we rebut the illiberal focus on race. But then the question is, OK, what sort of a force, what sort of an identity can a liberal democracy have that pulls people together as opposed to splitting them up and encourages cooperation and therefore collective action? So it turns out that American America does have a, a political identity, one that has, you know, there's empirical evidence for it. Right. Mm-hmm. Which which uh, you folks were referring to. Uh, I, I rely mostly on the work done by uh, Deborah Schildkraut, mm-hmm. OK, mm-hmm. where she, she interviewed Americans and, you know, and, and came up with, you know, uh, asked them about all sorts of propositions, ideas and found out that there's a relatively small set of ideas, which, in fact, are, you know, m- most people hold about what it means to be an American. Mm-hmm. And as you were saying, those ideas consist of adherence to uh, liberal political positions, liberal meaning those of the Declaration of Independence, right, right. civic republicanism, meaning organizing for community action, which is the kind of republicanism that Tocqueville talked about. Mm-hmm. There is incorporation. Americans believe that, hey, we're all made up of dif- different immigrant groups and now different types of groups. And so that's considered, you know, classically American. And also, unfortunately, the id of American politics is this belief that by some people that to be American, you have to be white or at least display a white cultural traits. And that's ethnoculturalism, which is always in danger of just, you know, degenerating into pure racism. Hmm. So the point I make is that, hey, we, we don't we don't need a racialist, a purely racialist theory of identity because you've already got an identity that's much better than racialism for a whole set of reasons that I could go into. Now, you raise an excellent question, which is, well, are these sets of ideas uh, maybe they're a too high a level of abstraction. Uh, maybe they, you know, are insufficient to function as uh, the glue that I hope they would function as. Well, allow me to point out, race is an idea that exists at a, a very high level of abstraction, right? Hey, I, I mean, I'm of Irish descent. There was a time when, you know, I remember my folks would would talk about how they were growing up, and you know, when a Polish girl would date would date an Italian guy. It was, oh my God. So, you know, so, the, so the, to say that to say that the white race, you know, it, you know, that that's that, that's that's a, a, a basis for identity. The white race is is an abstraction, a pretty highly rooted fa- faction hmm. uh, abstraction. And, you know, and we know that, you know, if you go back in British history, you know, the Scotch and the English and the Welsh and the Irish, you know, came close to destroying each other. Right. So all of these ideas exist at a fairly high uh, level of abstraction. And so I, you know, if the the issue is, hey, which of these ideas, you know, not only has the 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 strength to pull people together, but is also but but also, you know, lacks or, you know, pernicious side effects. Right. I, I would certainly say on balance, you're much better off with the with the actually existing American identity. And let's work with that. But you raise a very interesting question that deserves uh, further uh, examination. Yeah, I, I think that's a that's a really good point about how we already do rally around all kinds of highly abstracted ideas about ourselves and what we are and what we aspire to be. So right. uh, that's a good point. Um on that subject of sort of what we rally around and what ideas we find ourselves attracted to and we mobilize in support of, you talk in the book about informing an engaged public and how that yes. might help reinvigorate liberalism. Yes. Obviously, with what Harry and I do, we share a great deal of interest in doing something like that. So we're certainly with you there. And there's some evidence of that happening, for example, if you look at the protests in the Summer of Freedom last year. But at the same time, if you look at that same period, 
and what came out of it, you can see an example of what might be a mainstreaming of a lot of uh, critical theory as we know it, which, and we haven't touched on this, I think yet in in this discussion, but in the book you make a, a very good case, I think personally, that critical theory is not thoroughly compatible with a healthy liberal democracy. And well, I'm, I'm actually, I'm, I'm not sure I, I say that exact. So first okay. of all, are we talking about critical race theory? Just generally any of the critical theoretical schools, critical legal theory. Also, I mean, I think you don't, you don't use, I think that word specifically, but I, at least in my reading, and I think Phillips as well, you get a sort of from well, sort of like I, feminist standpoint I theory. Have, yeah. Yes, I, I have, I, let's say, I have certain disagreements with critical race theory, okay? I, cert, I, I don't think critical race theory is incompatible with the principles of liberal democracy. Okay. Not, not at all, okay? You know, and for instance, you, you know, I, I, look, I, I would say in general, it's, it's, impo- it's, it's entirely possible to have elements of racial identity. Sure. Um, to have groups that that could, that that that, that uh, identify with a particular racial identity, you can pr- certainly have race-based interest groups that function in a liberal democracy. Yeah, of course. Okay. Now, but let's. Okay. So, to, to, and 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 I, and I don't see that critical race theory, which which I'm not an expert in, uh, by the way. But I, I don't I don't see I, I don't see any I don't see any practitioner of 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 critical race theory explicitly stepping forward and making as a centerpiece of their argument opposition definitely to, to, to liberal democracy you see, you, see, you, you see them sometimes attacking liberalism but they sure. seem usually when they say that what they seem to have in mind is uh, the liberalism in the sense of the left wing of the Democratic Party which they aren't always entirely happy with because they think that the, 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 that that even even the left wing of the Democratic Party doesn't address ra- racial issues signif- uh, success mm. okay mm-hmm. now if you want to talk about m- criticism of critical racial theory I, I just barely touch on a couple of points okay mm-hmm. one is critical racial theorists, tend to focus on racism as a structure, okay, as a set of policies and practices and and economic forces, right, that overall disadvantaged black people, okay? Now, I've got no problem with the idea that that, 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 that social structures exist. I've got no beef with the idea that there is such a thing as structural racism. Right. Uh, but however, right. when you see, as for example, Ibram Kendi says, and this is, this is not somebody I have much disagreement with. And by the way, I found his first book, but it's about the history of racial ra- racist ideas. I think that's a pretty good book. But when he says in his later book that ideas are create politicians create ideas as a way of defending policies, so mm-hmm. the racial policies come first. Mm-hmm. And then racists cook up ideas to defend them, right? And then, if, and then from that, Kendi goes on to say, therefore, trying to change the ideas and to change what people think is not an effective way of fighting a racism because you have to dismantle the structures. Hey, I'm, I'm all in favor of dismantling the structures, but I think ideas are extremely important. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. ideas very often precede policy. The idea comes first for, let's say, Keynesian economics, right? And then you get the kind of budget policies that are embodied by Keynesian policies, for example, okay? So I think ideas are an independent political resource. And I think the trying to change people's ideas, change people's mind, Kendi thinks that's a suicidal policy. I disagree. I think that's extremely important part of the political struggle. You don't want to leave aside the uh, struggle over ideas. Right. And uh, and I think one one way to it, 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 the 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 idea that that Americans all share the set of ideas which is mostly healthy, liberalism, civic uh, civic republicanism, republicanism, incorporation. Americans share those sets of ideas. Right. That's a great beginning point for national discussions. Right. And by the way. With, within those ideas, you have some of the resources for tempering and 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 defeating the negative impulses of America's id, which is racism. 
Right. Well, so let me sort of rephrase the way I'm going with that question slightly, but I do want to talk about the ideas and you put, you hit on how important ideas yes. are. And that's sort of what I'm, I'm working towards. Let me put it this way. And you tell me if this is more accurate. You make a case in the book that sort of critical standpoint theory helped contribute to yeah. an idea, a, a sort of intellectual environment which cultivated the kind of illiberal rightism that we see today unintentionally. Is, okay. is that fair? Yes. Now that's that's something quite different. So so okay. critical race theory is one thing. Standpoint theory, to to my mind, is something quite different. I, I don't I don't see a whole lot of connection between okay. them. But but here here's here's the point I make. Here's the point I make. You know, what is what is this the source for the illiberal ideologies of today? And and above all, you know, where how was this vituperative polarizing, demonizing, attacking form of where, where did that come from? Okay. So, so I, you know, I, 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 you know, work in the history of ideas. So I try to go way back. Right. And my, and I make the following argument. Okay. Very briefly. Okay. If you go back to, you know, the sixties, right. There was this fear of a purely scientific society Okay, that was anti-democratic, and so the, the classic example of that would be uh, Brave New World, right. and then Martusa presented a non-fiction version of that, or argue in the in in One Dimensional Man, Marcusa argued that something like that had been created uh, already, come into existence, and the and the and the and the concern about about science was that hey, if science depends on the scientific community. And the scientific community all has to have a homogeneous set of ideas, or at least that's what was argued. So the fear was if you have a homogeneous society, and it turns out this homogeneous society is also racially and sexually homogeneous, then uh, what's, is, it, it's, is it possible that people who all share this outlook are going to be so blind to their prejudices right. that the sci purely scientific society will go off the track and it will repress everyone who is, you know, not already a member of this small scientific or scientistic community. Okay. So that was a serious concern. Feminist authors addressed this by saying, hey, you know what we need to do? We, you know, we need to start inquiry from the standpoint of marginalized groups. So, because right. the idea was this, right? In order to see the prejudices of, of, of a society. You have to look at the society from the outside, and then you can see the prejudices. Whereas if you stay inside the society, you'll never see them. And that's where the danger of, of an illiberal scientistic society comes from. Right. Therefore, you know, start from the perspective of women, start from the perspective of minorities, start right. from the perspective or the standpoint of the third world. And what's 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 useful about that is not that these people, these these marginalized groups are necessarily any better or know any more than the mainstream groups. But just sim simply the fact that they're outside of it gives them critical distance. OK, a plausible argument. Right. Until one day somebody came along and said, hey, wait a second. Aren't Nazis marginal, too? Right? Aren't, aren't, isn't the Nazi position a position that's marginal to liberal democratic societies? Answer, yes. So therefore, you know, so it was argued, uh, if you're supposed to cultivate uh, marginal standpoints like those of minorities and women, now aren't you required to cultivate the marginal standpoint of Nazis? Right, right. right. Well, okay, so now, so, so in one way, this seems like a very odd kind of argument argument to make. But what it shows is that, okay, if you if you start off with an epistemology and a political philosophy that privileges the margins, all sorts of strange people are going to run to the margins <laughs> and and say, hey, I'm outside mainstream society too. Now now my point of view is privileged and now you have to admit that I have critical distance on society and that my thoughts for changing it are more legitimate than the mainstream. And that is basically 
what happened with the with the the alt right and illiberals. Now I'm not going to go into a long discussion. I I don't claim that the alt right and the illiberals got this idea from feminists. They got right. the idea from uh, certain types of postmodernists, including Marcuse. They got the idea, especially from Gramsci, and the idea that right. uh, to create a revolution, you have to create a, a, a an outside ideology which right. is critical of the mainstream. Okay, so anyhow, so now here's the question though: If you're a, a right winger and uh, you want to uh, claim the epistemology that comes from starting at the margins. But you're not at the margin, right? You're white, you're male, you're middle class. So how do you get to the margin? Answer, lash out vituperatively and mean-spiritedly as nastily as you can at everybody. And they will be shocked and say, oh, my God, you're a nut. What's the matter? You know, you're disgusting. And therefore, you end up on the margins and you say to yourself, oh, what a good boy am I? You see, I've proven it. I'm at the margin. That must mean that there's something powerful about what I have to say. And of course, this rhetorical strategy doesn't convince many feminists or progressives, but it puts backbone in the spine. It puts steel in the spine of the illiberals. And it's 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 what's called a uh, a stigma management mechanism because now you can say, hey, all of these people that are attacking me and saying that there's something wrong with me and that I'm sick, well, you know, in the old days, you know, in the '60s, '50s, '70s, '80s, if you got that kind of criticism, you would, you know, you would simply back off or you would disguise the nastier points of your ideology. Now, when you receive that kind of attack. You say to yourself, oh, I must be right. And so, you know, and so therefore you see that that's where the development of the vituperative, warlike, demonizing rhetoric comes from. And, you know, I can't resist quoting to you from Ann Coulter. Ann Coulter wrote a book, I I think it was back around, well, I'm not sure exactly when it was, maybe sometime around 2010. It was called How to Speak to a Liberal If You Must. Right. And Ann Coulter says, you must outrage the enemy if the liberal you're arguing with doesn't become speechless with sputtering, impotent rage. You're not doing it right. Nothing too extreme can be said of liberals because it's all true. Well, there in a nutshell, you have the insight of the illiberal rhetorical strategy. Antagonize people, make them hurt. And in this way, rhetoric no longer is a tool for convincing people. It's a tool for alienating people. Okay. Right. And, right. and, and so that is, so, so going all the way back to standpoint uh, epistemology, I think throws some light, basically standpoint, impl- uh, standpoint epistemology in, 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 in its serious attempt to deal with a genuine criticism of liberal democratic so- societies opened up unintentionally, as happens all the time in, in, in political theory, opened up a loophole that illiberals took advantage of, and here we are. Yeah, so that history that you just went through, the quick version, was one of the parts I really liked about the book. I found that very interesting. And I'm sort of interested in this, this journey of these ideas from Gramsci's prison cell to yeah. the mainstream, of you have to be an outsider to gain weight, to launch a revolution, these kinds of things, which have clearly shaped the way that the liberal right interacts and has actually found a sort of island of supporters. And it seems to me that one of the ways that these ideas sort of trickled down, let's say, into the mainstream way we think about things, which then shaped the way that the liberal right behaves, is through you talk about the divided line of communication in a democracy, yes, communication yes, yes. of ideas in a democracy and how uh, things sort of begin with the experts, which then get disseminated to intellectuals who then can package things into a publicly accessible format for communication yes. types. And then they gain widespread acceptance or widespread awareness. Yes. Um, but we have here with the example of, of, where standpoint theory went or or Gramsci's theory of the subaltern, where it went, it trickled down into a mainstream 
illiberal sentiment and policy and, and ideas. So yes. I guess, and it began in some ways that process of trickling down among experts who took Gramsci seriously, who yes, in some yes. ways, who, who was in fact a sort of illiberal thinker. Yes. So I guess you talk about the importance of experts in the role of yes. formulating ideas, which are sort of healthy for liberalism. Yes. Yes. Um, but is there something we've missed that will guarantee our experts think within the lines of liberalism or must they simply do so? I guess in other words, does liberalism need experts that are committed to a search for truth as they find it, however that might be, or does liberalism really need just more effective ideologues who are in the positions of experts? Well, I think I think it's, you know, perhaps both. Uh, first of all, you know, my idea of expert, I, I you know, I have the, the, the term can apply to many different types of people. So, you know, you're a plumber, you're a golf instructor, you know, you know, you're uh, the classroom teacher who uh, you took advanced placement English literature from when you were in high school. In a certain sense, they could all be called uh, experts. Right. But of course, in, in the terms of my book, I think of experts at be, uh, people who operate at a very high level of abstraction and who have mastered field scientifically. I mean, I, I, under, I understand, and when I, the way I use scientific here, I would use it very broadly. I would even include people who were like, you know, masters in art history as having mm-hmm. a scientific understanding of art history, right. not just in the sense that, you know, art history involves understanding chemicals and ratios and such, but also that, you know, it's an organized, rational attempt to make sense of uh, some set of some portion of reality, right? Sure. So at, at that very high level of abstraction, well, there's no question that, that, that even experts at that level of abstraction, like Nobel Prize winning economists, right, will often have a political agenda. But the hardcore of their ideas, I like to think of as being close, you know, as close to a apolitical as any any product of the human mind can get. Hmm. Okay, so then, so that that's where we are. That's that's at the top of what what Plato called and what I call the divided line. Okay, and and those ideas, you know, are 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 are, are applied right at lower levels of abstraction. So people naturally tend to think. Oh, okay. So these scientific understandings of economics, which perhaps are developed by Keynes, or, you know, you might say they were developed by Milton Friedman, although both Keynes and Milton Friedman certainly had their ideological orientations. But the hardcore of their studies were theoretically independent of ideology. Anyhow, from those high levels of abstraction, you get the people that Hayek called the secondhand dealers in ideas, mm-hmm. right? They, they take the ideas and they simplify them and they use and, and, and they just, dis- and they disseminate the understanding of those ideas more broadly and they uh, apply them to uh, practical problems. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so I, now I, I argue that um, any modern society needs both experts and intellectuals. Right. Right. And, you know, I, I, I think, I don't think I would, let's put it this way. What I think both experts and intellectuals and other people further down the divided line, which eventually ends in people like us, just average folks who absorb so much of what they learn from the media and the papers. What what liberal liberal democracy needs is uh, not a dogmatic adherence to liberal democracy by anybody. So I'm absolutely against the idea that, well, there are experts at the very top of the ideological food chain and they are like the priests of liberal democracy Mm -hmm. and they Mm -hmm. defend the face. I'm against anything like that. But I do think that because for for no other reason than that liberal democracy has over the decades and the centuries, you know, demonstrated that it is, you know, it's, it's often held to be the political ideology or the political philosophy which has been responsible for the most uh, positive regimes that uh, human beings have ever lived in. So I, th- I, and I think, I think that is a, you know, a, a, a broad brush 
abstraction based on based on experience. Hmm. So I think what is needed, you know, at all levels of intellectual activity is we, we could say that liberal democracy ha- gets something like a the benefit of a doubt, you know, right. a, that, that it is accepted always conditionally and provisionally, right, as a baseline from which to begin our inquiries into politics and against which we can measure proposals for other systems. So I, I, I don't think we need experts who, whose job it is to consciously set out and twist people's arms for liberal democracy. Right. But I think all people who are active intellectually at whatever level of abstraction need to take into consideration the historical reality that a liberal democracy has had very uh, p- positive results mm-hmm. so far and give liberal democracy the benefit of a doubt. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. We're obviously close to our time here. And so just to wrap things up, there's just one more question that okay. I can't help but ask before you go. One idea that seems to percolate throughout your analysis is that despite some popular conceptions, liberalism is not and cannot be a, a completely open system, right? Beyond the even the basic bundle of rights it offers, it needs, you know, some further guardrails. Uh, I think you sort of wrap that in under the idea of like the liberal ethic of controversy, which essentially yes, draws yes. some some lines about what is acceptable discourse and what isn't. Nazism would be outside of it because it rejects the rules that liberalism is founded on. And I guess you sort of say that one way, one important way forward for liberalism is to stick to its own rules and maybe draw these lines. But I wonder if that's quite enough. Philip came up with an analogy while we were discussing your book. Imagine you're sitting in a bar, everyone in the bar is having pleasant conversation, even pleasant political arguments, if we can imagine those. But one guy in the bar is a skinhead who's got an Iron Cross tattoo, and he gets up and he starts shouting about how politics is war, just as you were discussing earlier, and anyone not with him is against him, and maybe he's employing that tactically, right? And, you know, everyone maybe ignores him let's say he pulls out a knife right and he starts saying he's going to kill people because politics is war he's a schmidian right and do you just continue to ignore him exclude him or do you have have to at some point you know get off the bar stool and engage in that knife fight with him right can liberalism survive illiberal cultural disruption of the scale we've now seen and come out on the other side the same or at some point does it have to break some of its own rules to set things right um maybe come out of, out of those challenges um, a little yeah. bit scarred. And perhaps, I mean, I think one thing that people worry about is that, you know, the more tenaciously liberalism fights back, perhaps the more it risks corroding its own sort of baseline fundamental yeah. assumptions. So I'm curious yeah. what you, what you think about that? No, I, I, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't agree with that. I mean, the, you know, the skinhead or anybody else who wants to step forward and make a case for illiberal ideologies is welcome to do so. Right. Right. Uh, Now, you know, I mean, we, you know, in listening to these arguments, uh, I think it's healthy to come in with an understanding of intellectual history to realize that, you know, the benefit of a doubt is on a liberal democracy. The uh, burden of proof is on people who want to try to prove that there's a a, a better system. Right. Uh, But let let such people speak out. And sometimes such people actually uh, produce work that is uh, worth listening to. So, you know, some people think Schmidt is worth listening to. He's certainly a serious uh, thinker. Gramsci, you know, is, is, you know, all deserve thought. Plato, for example, Plato has a very low opinion of democracy, right? Right. And I certainly don't want to ban Plato or prevent people from uh, studying Plato. So, insofar as, however, let me let me, however, point out that as a matter of fact, if you look at the alt right and most illiberal intellectuals today, the the quality of the thought is extremely low. Right. You do uh, a good job laying that out in the book. Yeah. yeah. You know, for I, I mean, I you know, it, it's it's not difficult to blow these people out of the water with a few uh, uh, with a little bit of common sense. But right. let them go ahead. Let them go ahead and talk, you know. Now, and we can evaluate what they have to say. And I think in that environment, you know, there's no problem. Now, what, what happens when somebody pulls out a knife? Now, well, at that point yeah, where we have translated from a discussion to literally being attacked at knife point, now that is, you know, at that point, there's no longer, we're beyond the, the point of discussion. We, we really, by the way, there really is such a thing as war. I mean, I mean, I'm against saying that politics is war. Right. Right. Especially democratic politics 
is not war. Right. But is war a real phenomenon? Yes. And when you go to war, you have to defend yourself. Um, now, I don't, I don't believe that, you know, all's fair in love and war, the same ethics and morals that uh, applied in any other situation applies in war. And it's true that sometimes you've got to bend your tactics. So, you know, Abraham Lincoln, very famous, right. suspe- suspended the, the rule of habeas corpus, which, right. by the way, is provided for in the Constitution. Right. So it really wasn't a violation of the Constitution. So, yeah, so liberal democracy is smart enough to realize that, gee whiz, when, you're, when, when, when push comes to shove and you're actually engaged in blows and exchange of gunfire, you, you know, you have a, a different set of, of tactics apply. Right. But I don't I don't think I don't think none of this has anything to do with, uh, you know, should, does liberalism have to in order to survive? Must liberalism violate its own premises? I don't I don't see that argument as having any validity. Right. And I, I mean, I think I tend to agree with that. I think that that is, I guess, the only the only instances where, you know, starts to get shaky, I, I suppose, is where, you know, one, if we think of it, although that is sort of a slippery slope fallacy, right, thinking that just because people are saying these things, just because they view politics in this way, does not mean that that, you know, the next step is that they pull out the knife. So well, I think that makes be, sense. You know, it's true. The next step might be, you know, they might be on the, ver- you know, the verge of going from words to action. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, and so you have, you have to be, uh, you have to be sophisticated. You have to have, you, be, you have to be realistic. But, you know, if for them, and you and you have to acknowledge, you know, as somebody once said, you don't want to give the, the terrorists one free blast. Right. But none of those observations really represents a, a violation of right. uh, liberalism's ethics or rules. Yeah. Sure. Right. right. That makes sense. Right. Well, certainly uh, a temptation for some is there to, to break those rules. So hopefully we can find our way forward in the midst of sort of the difficult. It can difficult- be tough. Yeah, in the, tough, in the midst of the difficult situation we're in while while not breaking them. But with that said, Professor Thomas, uh, thank you so much for joining us for this discussion that uh, was, I think, fascinating and important, not unlike your book, which I hope some of our listeners will pick up and read. And we'll have a link for that in the show notes, by the way. But again, okay. thank you very much for sitting down with us and for considering and writing about these ideas, which yes. are so crucial for the health of democracy. We were happy to have you. Yeah, thank you so much. Let me just let me just say I, I welcome Twitter followers. If you'd like to follow me, my right. Twitter you're, is, you're Thomas yeah. J. Main, right? We'll throw a link to that as well in, in the, the show, show notes. notes. Yeah. Excellent. Thank you so much. And, All right. And thank you. And hope maybe we'll have a chance if you if you write again in the future, maybe we'll have a chance Absolutely. to talk again then. Very good. Right. Very good. Thank you. Thank you so much. Best wishes. Bye bye. That's all for today. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing and share this episode with your friends or on social media. If you'd like to listen to each new article of Focus and Insight read aloud, follow the link in the notes for Spectacles Out Loud. If you'd like to make a comment on the episode that you just heard, there's a link to our website, also in the notes, where you can also subscribe to our newsletter if you haven't already to receive a new way of seeing politics in your inbox five days a week. And find us on Twitter, at Spectacles Media. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks.